When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joseph Fridman, and today I am incredibly excited to be joined by Venkatesh Rao. Venkat is a writer, consultant. You might know him as the author of the Ribbon Farm blog and as the author of the recent Art of Gig, Volume 1, Foundations, and Volume 2, Superstructures. It is such a pleasure to actually get the chance to chat. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. So I wanted to start off with an essay that I think could give folks an appreciation for what it is that you're trying to do with these two volumes, which you collected after writing for several years on Substack. You have an essay that talks about these two views that someone can take on any number of things, but importantly, they're working and waking lives. And you, you draw this distinction between the panoramic view and the myopic view. And I was just wondering, it seems like this came about from a walk in Runyon Canyon in LA or something like that. I wanted to just, if you could tell me the story of that essay. Yeah, so that was a thought inspired by, I guess, not one, but two outings in LA. One is Runyon Canyon, which is like a traditional sort of hike. You walk maybe a mile and a half or so, and you get to this viewpoint with a panoramic view of the LA cityscape. It's really beautiful. And you feel like you achieved something just getting to that point. And then the reward is like getting this big panoramic view of the city. And the other is, I forget the name of the park, but it's a little botanical garden. It's a very different kind of park. It's at a single level. You don't have to climb to get there. You enter through the gate and it's like a trail that winds through many different forest habitats, like, you know, different kinds of trees, ponds, and so forth. And you, when you're walking through, you are never able to see more than like, say, five to 10 feet ahead of you and usually closer up. And that was also very relaxing in its own way. And that got me thinking about the two kinds of reflection, panoramic reflection, where you take in a vista that's really all the way to the horizon. And what I've started thinking of as myopic reflection, which is looking fairly close uh, in front of you. And and both have their particular sorts of value. And it also reminded me, like back in the 80s, I read a business book that made this interesting point for a business book, especially that when Americans want to meditate, they tend to like look for the big sky, big open country environment. So the poetry of Walt Whitman is that kind of big sky country kind of poetry, leaves of grass, for example, whereas the Japanese, their tendency is when they want to meditate, they retreat into the inner sanctum of a building, like maybe a little cottage or something like that. And again, there's this distinction between panoramic and myopic uh, tendencies of reflection and contemplation. And it struck me that 
quite often when you're stuck in any life problem, and in this particular case, since the books are about gig work and independent work, say you're stuck there, the tendency is to seek the panoramic viewpoint, which is like satisfying and anxiety alleviating in a particular way in that you can sort of take in everything. You just spin around in place 360 degrees and your whole universe is sort of uh, within reach, at least visually. And the myopic view, on the other hand, it blocks your vision in every direction and forces you to concentrate close up. But quite often, that's the kind of perspective you need to break out of something. So for to take a very concrete example, if you're stuck at work, rather than take a walk to a big viewpoint, you can actually just examine your desk closely, what's on your desk, look at your stapler, what are the little doodads within six inches of your hands. And I find that that often breaks you out of weird mental traps. So yeah, it's like a interesting theme for me to, I don't know, look at any situation in which I'm stuck. Yeah, yeah. You, you get to this idea of appreciative myopia. You talk about this next decade being one in which maybe taking a myopic, an appreciative myopic view on our own lives is the thing that might make the most sense. I think this takes us to one of the great things about this book, which is that you're simultaneously placing us in the history of gig work, of kind of modern gig work, talking about just the common kind of cultural moment, the common political economic moment. And you're giving us a real kind of in-depth sense of your own life and how it's intertwined with both of those things. Can you give me a sense of why you think appreciative myopia is the perspective, it's the aperture to take on on your own work? Why, why folks should even be interested in that gig work or not at the moment? Yeah, so there's like uh, two things going on there. One is the word appreciative. That comes from a book on urban planning by John Friedman. And the book on urban planning makes a distinction between manipulative knowledge and appreciative knowledge. And manipulative, not in the Machiavellian sense, but in the sense of like how-to knowledge. How do you make a cup of tea? So that's manipulative knowledge. Appreciative knowledge is more like how do you appreciate uh cup of tea? How do you like take in all the aspects of a thing and just hold it in contemplation? And that's something I think is very missing in all the literature on thinking about your career, whether traditional careers or free agent careers. There's not much about just reflecting and contemplating what you're even looking at, the sort of hyper object that's your work and career. So that's one aspect appreciative. And the other aspect that I think is missing in the literature on work in general of any sort is a sense of history. There's this, you read a typical book of career advice and it's uh, this artifact outside of time, which might like gesture at a couple of trends. It might say machine learning is big now and you should look for a career in machine learning or something like that, something very practical. But you get the sense that the idea of work, skills, relationship to work, all that is of outside of time and not situated in history. And appreciative myopia, when applied to thinking about work and the current historical moment is about both having a sense of history and having a sense of like appreciative contemplation of that history. That is two reasons I think to do this. One is basically a philosophical one. The, the whole idea of the unexamined life is not worth living and to properly examine a thing, you have to examine it in its historical context. So that the appreciative reason to do appreciative myopia, if you will. But the there's actually a practical reason, which is if you only look at the manipulative how-to knowledge involved in career and work skills, 
it actually makes you less imaginative and extremely tactical thinker, makes you very poor at anticipating the broader currents and shifts in the zeitgeist that you might much better or opportunistically take advantage of. And interestingly enough, these sort of big picture strategic advantages that come from appreciative myopia that allow you to make your career at the range of 10 to 30 years much more satisfying, you don't get there through the panoramic vista. You can't like do the conceptual equivalent of climbing up to a mountain and taking in the vista of your 50 years of working life all at once. That's not how you do it. It works best if you are really attentive to details that are within your sort of myopic field of view and appreciate the significance of very specific and particular things. Let me see if I can think of a good example. I think in the book, you do this when you talk about payment flows. You do this when you talk about the minute parts of a negotiation with a client. Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of examples I'm thinking of at the sort of work process level, the sort of mindful attention to the work process. And to pick up on that example you mentioned, when you get paid with PayPal and like for several years, and then suddenly one day people stop paying you on PayPal and start paying you with Stripe invoices instead, it feels like at one level, it's just an annoying bureaucratic shift in patterns. At another level, it is a cue to step back and look at how do payments work? How does the culture of like financial transactions in free agent work actually unfold? And what does it mean that the culture of payments is shifting from one to the other? Sometimes it hits you in the face. Like I got paid in cryptocurrency for the first time a couple of years ago. And that the significance of that, of course, hits you in the face. It's a whole sort of uh, completely different economic paradigm. But other times it's much more subtle. Are invoices being paid particularly quickly in a particular sector versus delayed endlessly and then you have to remind them three times to get paid? What does that tell you about the relative vigor and potential and prospects of different sectors? So that's the zooming in and out from the myopic level to pick up on the critical details that matter. And then, of course, it's not that the panoramic view is useless. You have to zoom back out to then appreciate the significance of the detail in the larger context, right? Because not all details are equally significant. And I, and I think that gets to something that gives this book real stakes, which is that amidst all of these kind of small, seemingly small things about how somebody in that's doing knowledge work, specifically this really interesting style of knowledge work that you've coined a term for, conversational sparring, among the other types of consulting and indie work you do. But it speaks to the stake of having a framework for that, which I think in the book, at sometimes it felt as weighty, and I, I appreciated this, as weighty as the meaning of one's waking life and what it is that somebody spends their adult life doing. A lot of the time I was thinking about this Ericksonian life stage, about generativity or stagnation. And it, at times, both of these volumes felt like a meditation on that, on how to keep pursuing generativity given the ways of doing knowledge work today, the changing in the economy, this great weirding, this other thing that you've coined that's going on right now. And so I think I wanted to talk for a second about that, about how this project started for you. It was at a, you were at a different time in your life as an indie and how the stakes of it evolved and gave us this book. Yeah, when I started writing, uh, not the book, but the newsletter from which it was born, and that was 2019, and then I wrapped it up a couple of years later in early 2021, so two full years of the newsletter, and of course the pandemic started halfway in between, and this was also the transitional year from the Trump administration to the Biden administration with all the chaos that followed, at least in the U.S., and then similar patterns around the world. There's a sort of correlated global bearding thing going on. 
And all these pressures, I think they made a tendency from the previous decade much more acute. And the tendency I'm talking about is this idea of work as this entirely transactional game that you are just in to win. If you'll excuse my language, it's a game you play for fuck you money. And then when you get it, you exit the game and then you sit off to one side and retired early from work, like looking contemptuously on at the rest of the world of work, people who are still trapped by it, as you think. And that whole attitude has always struck me as terrible. And a lot of advice about work and careers is framed around the like paradoxical idea of that being a good thing. On the one hand, it's like you have to think about what you're doing and be really good at it to actually succeed. But on the other hand, you're playing the game in order to leave it. And that is somewhat at odds with it. And I think that was the provocation for me because at the point I started writing the newsletter, I had been an independent consultant for almost a decade, nine years at that point, And I was enjoying my work. Like I quit my last job and I enjoyed that too. I had never been in this sort of condition of hating my work and wanting to quit it and so forth. Yes, of course, I would like to make more money for less work and take risks. And yes, if I can get to a stage where I don't have to work anymore, that would be lovely. But I don't have this fundamentally toxic relationship with work where I try to do it well in order to not do it at all. So what's the opposite of that? uh, What I think of as a finite game orientation. And I think the opposite of that is like a way of like approaching the world of work rather than retreating from it, because that's what the other attitude I was reacting to, I think, does. It's got this fundamental suspicion of work as a world you must retreat from, but you need it, therefore you must approach it and extract value from it. But the moment you've extracted enough value, you must retreat. And I didn't like that. To me, it's like, this is actually an important part of life. It's part of becoming who you are as a full person. And to do that, you kind of have to approach it willingly with the sort of conscious intention of staying there indefinitely. It's like until infirmity or death does you in, why not work? Work is a satisfying part of life, just like every other part of life. And once you have this fundamental orientation, you start asking, all right, what does it mean to work in a way where you're not like um, constantly playing to win the fuck you money exit route? What does it mean to actually approach work as something you want to get good at because it deepens your sort of engagement with that aspect of life as opposed to something you want to get good at in order to like compete and beat other people and get out of? So I think it's like basically a work positive approach to work, which is surprisingly missing in a lot of the work literature. It's like a lot of the work literature is fundamentally work negative ways of winning work. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking a lot about this trichotomy of viewing work as a one's work as a job, a calling or a career. And it strikes me that at many times in this book you offer other ways of thinking about work orientation. You talk about the meta-level game for indies of finding some sort of growth phase after they've gotten out from under the pressure of invoicing and then building client pipeline and then making sure that they're not stickifying themselves, getting into an area where you're playing infinite games, where you're pursuing enchantment. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about who that sort of advice is for. You also offer this interesting trichotomy. You you talk about under the API gig workers, contractors, and then consultants. And I think I maybe wanted to get a sense from you of what a what the true consultant is in that picture and who it is that you're writing this book for. 
So, of course, as with any book, you're usually first writing it for yourself. And in most cases, there's like a degree of projection and denial of tendencies you see within yourself. And I think that's always true of any writing, that the first part of it is an unconscious part of yourself that maybe you're a little scared of. And then you see it more clearly when it's projected onto other people. So I, I think in my case, the thing that's always been the thing I've feared about attitudes and orientations towards work is what's become known as hustle porn. The entire world of people who are like extremely busy refining their formulas for winning to like a fever pitch. So the word hacking is often attached to that, whether it's growth hacking or study hacking or whatever you call it on like, you know, engagement farming is a good example. Whether we may not all be on Twitter for much longer, I don't know, but on any social media site, you can approach it as well. Take the word social seriously. It's a place where you actually meet real people and you see them as human and engage with them as human and get the pleasure of mutualism and engaging with others. That's one way of being with people. Another way is to recognize the fact that it's a distribution medium that if played well, can do things for you, like in a selfish sense. And then you get into this engagement farming mode of maximizing your reach and everything turns into this kind of soulless machine life, the machine like grind. And I think the kind of person I'm writing for is really the person who's not going to go down that route, but is occasionally tempted by it and wonders whether they're doing the right thing. Because when you're like taking the more slow, thoughtful, appreciative path, as opposed to the growth hacky, I don't know, slightly distasteful path to me, you're always wondering if like, I've been at this game for six years and here's this other guy who started last year and he's like tweeting up a storm and writing clickbaity things, writing listicles and bullshit articles that appeal to the idiots in the audience and he's exploiting them and I don't know, having an exploding YouTube thing and so forth. You see these characters all around and that triggers moments of self-doubt and anybody who wants a more meaningful relationship to work. And then you have to ask yourself, all right, if I'm not that, what am I? And the answer then becomes, all right, you have to not think in terms of finding a formula and then refining it, but actually being almost anti-formulaic, like never losing the freshness and improvised sense of deep play in your engagement with work and everything that entails. So that's, I think, who I'm writing for. And I think the book helped me process that unconscious sense that's important for me and for a lot of other people. And I think the people it's, uh, who find that it speaks to them are the ones who need to hear that. So you, you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you're no stranger to this genre that the majority of books, whether they're deep anthropological studies or history or pop psychology and airport books, or even the type of hackery that, that you're talking about that burns out like tissue paper, but makes quite a few people warm while it does so. You're familiar with the genre because you you grew up, you, you write reading business books and being fascinated with them. I wanted to ask a little bit about that. And you, you cite folks prolifically. Ribbon Farm is full of book reviews and even just the essays that, that you mentioned so far, right? The Friedman comes up actually in this fascinating essay where you're building up this model of pundits and gurus. And so you're constantly pl- playing with this literature in different ways. Can you give me a sense of how you think this fits in the genre and what made you grow to love it or crave it or just go so deep in it as a kid, as a teenager in the first place? 
So as a kid, of course, most things we do tend to be, I don't know, instinctive. You try something, it's fun, you do more of it. And you, I don't think I actually reflected on why I liked business writing until much later. But yeah, I read books because I was just a voracious reader and business books happened to one particularly plentiful genre of book that used to lie around my house because my dad at that point was a senior executive in Tata Steel, which is a large steel company. And he was on a management track. He'd bring back management books from the library and I'd read them too. And so I got into that. And then as I grew older, I guess I I grew more discerning and developed my own tastes and opinions on what makes for good business writing. And I I want to qualify what I said earlier about the, there was an evocative way you put it, like tissue paper that uh, (laughs) burns and keeps a lot of- A bit too flowery, yeah, go ahead. No, I think that's exactly right. But I think we, we want to be nuanced there because there is, I don't want to convey the impression that I am a business literature snob who only reads like extreme classics with a slightly academic tone. No, I actually love a lot of airport business books too. I love even the little slim volumes, those little business parables that are like a quarter of an inch thick and have some silly story. There's one called Fish, I think, about enthusiastic work attitude at the Pike Place market or something like that. So there's, I like all levels of mm. depth. What I think I react badly to is insincerity, where you don't care about the truth or falsity of the ideas you're discussing or engaging at whatever level. Whether you're like writing like a very naive beginner business listicle article of seven ways to be a better leader, but you actually care. You're sincerely thinking about it as best you can versus even if you're writing like a 200 page academic tome full of like heavy terminology and you maybe have like papers and stuff, but it's fundamentally uh, insincere. You're playing like a game and writing stuff in a language you will sell. So it's the insincerity that gets to me. That nuance aside, I think, yeah, uh, I think it goes back to business literature is again, so not career literature, not career advice or how to succeed in your own career, but more things like reading biographies of business leaders, explanations of like important the ideas in the business world, say total quality management was one. In the 80s, it was a big sort of management thing. And my dad was training to be a quality guy. Like he was leading his organization's efforts to get an ISO 9001 certification. So he had a lot of total quality management books around. And yes, even that kind of stuff. The common feature to the stuff I liked was it actually appreciates and takes its subject matter seriously. It cares about the distinction between truth and falsity through whatever framework it brings to the thinking. So it's not bullshit. It actually cares to say true things and avoid saying false things. So there's that sincerity and non-bullshitty engagement of the subject matter. And then of course, there's like various ways you can actually do that. You can make up like flowcharts and your seven step program or like a block diagram type thing. You can be a much more historically oriented author and and dig up hundred years of business history and make a claim. So what particular methodology you bring to the problem of thinking about work and business is less relevant than the sort of sincerity of attitude. And I would say the thoroughness and depth with which you're willing to engage, which is of course limited by your knowledge and skills. If you want to like very thoroughly engage the history and case studies of the oil industry, you have to know something about the 
geology and chemistry of oil and read some stuff and educate yourself technically. And maybe you may or may not have an aptitude for going technically deep. But to the extent you're able to go deep, you go deep and you try to actually understand what you're thinking about as deeply and thoroughly as possible because you actually enjoy it. It's it's a nerd-like approach. So that's what I really like. I like business thinking that exhibits like a nerd affection for its subject. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Whereas the stuff I dislike is stuff that clearly is playing it to win the game of popular business ideas and TED Talks and airport business books. And it doesn't really care about its subject matter, which I would say is about more than half of what is that kind. It's like, I just want to write a book because having a book and a Harvard Business Review article is a good calling card to have and it'll open doors. It's that kind of like very instrumental and transactional and manipulative reasons for writing and engaging a subject as opposed to actually being a business nerd. So yeah, I'm, I guess that's my litmus test of taste. Is it a nerd-like taste or not? Yeah, and I think it, for folks that aren't aren't clued in, I think the way that you popped onto the scene for kind of business and management writing was kind of the incisive take applying business frameworks to the office with the Gervais principle. And so I would by no means call you call you a snob, but you do give this piece of advice that draws from the Gervais principle, which is you say the way to get inbound leads to get folks to engage with your work in a way that can be profitable in in, in one sense and not too intellectually demeaning in the other is to write 20% beef. There's other kind of advice you give in, in, in the book, th- things that people should ask themselves. Could this work if I open sourced the entire thing? Would anyone else actually use it? Or is this just tied to me creating a need for my work in other people's lives? And in general, I think you offer this kind of type of advice that I would say in your own framework is actor advice, not model, not a model advice, which is to say you give advice to people that is either very right or very wrong, and you admit this in, in, in the writing, and then you give people a framework to generate their own questions about it. I wanted to maybe ask you to meditate on that just a little bit. Te- teach us what model questions and actor questions are and why you are pulling towards actor questions or these kind of great truths things that can either be entirely right or entirely wrong for somebody. Sure. Uh, That's an interesting challenge to try and connect up those uh, three thoughts, the idea of 20% beef, then the model versus actor distinction, and then the whole full right versus full wrong. So let's take them in with the actors versus models thing first. So what I mean by actors versus models is Models tend to all look alike, and by this fashion ramp models, they are all basically human cloth hangers, and they're meant to display clothes. And usually, even though they're often very beautiful people, both men and women, they are not recognizably notable, as in like the parade becomes interchangeable after a while, and you can't tell them apart. Whereas actors, even if they're not conventionally attractive, they tend to have high recognizability quotient, where if you see them in one movie or TV show, and then they pop up again in another movie or TV show, and maybe they're not as famous as George Clooney or something, so they're not like in the top level of named recognizability, but you still recognize them. It's like you play the little game with your family members of where have I seen him or her before? So that's the recognizability (laughs) of actors. And I think the rationale behind my general tendency to push towards both becoming an actor myself and encouraging others to become actors is 
that's how you both express your individuality and the unique aspects of who you are. And at a more shallow level, it's how you pop from the crowd and differentiate yourself, but that's less important. But yeah, if in the world of independent consulting, models are sort of interchangeable. Um, there are hundreds of people who might offer a particular kind of like service. And often that's where the, you asked earlier about consulting, contracting versus under the API platform gig workers. It's that's basically a hierarchy of commoditization versus differentiation. And if you're an actor, you're more differentiated, but that's not the reason to be a differentiated person in the world of work is not to be somebody with a brand who can charge a premium simply because you're unique and distinct like George Clooney or whatever. That's not the reason. The reason is if you're not becoming increasingly unique over time, it means you're not growing because if you're learning and growing, chances are you're becoming unique and diverging from others. So it's almost a test of, are you even alive and learning in a deep way? That's the reason I focus on active questions. Now to connect up to the first thing you mentioned, which is the 20% beef. So this is one of my heuristics for one of the most common questions independent dancers and gig workers ask, which is, how do you start from zero? You're in a regular job, you have no contacts, maybe you have a blog that not many people read. How do you actually go ahead and get your first gig? And often the advice given for that sort of situation is some sort of grinding, high effort thing of, I don't know, pitch a hundred people and so forth. And in my experience, that never works. The one strategy I know works is picking a beef with the, or a group that's already prominent and known in the area you want to be operating in, but there's a shallow way and a deep way to do it. The shallow way is um, kind of like just picking a fight like an internet troll, replying to a famous person or writing a blog post, calling a famous person an idiot. That's not what I mean by uh, picking a beef. Picking a beef to me means you look, ideally you don't look at just one person, you look at a group of people because that gets you away from like individual resentments and jealousies and envy and those kinds of like baser motives and forces you to look at what does this group of people together who are like singing the same tune, offering the same party line very successfully, why do they turn me off? What do they say that I disagree with? And then you dig a couple of levels deeper and you find some fundamental supposition or axiom in their thinking, no matter how successful, but that one element in the foundations of their thinking you disagree with, and then you pick that to challenge and you say, hey, you guys believe this, I refuse to believe that, and here's my alternate belief, and I'm gonna build a whole superstructure of thought on that. And in my case, the articles that you mentioned, the Gervais Principle, it was a series of six essays about the NBC show, The Office, looked at as like a management text. And I think the beef I picked with existing management literature was this sort of assumed consensus that the world of work is a place full of nice people who have good intentions and are fundamentally playing win-win cooperative games with each other and anything else is an aberration. And I offered a view of the workplace that fundamentally turned that axiom on its head and picked the beef with the people who were offering that axiom of, uh, no, the world of work is full of sociopaths and you actually have to understand how that's actually an essential part. It's not an aberration. It's not a bad thing. 
That's what makes the world of work. You have these manipulative sociopaths who manipulate clueless people and then they rise in the organization and that's how the organization works in a kind of Darwinian creative destruction mode. And I built up like a whole, to some people pessimistic, to some people very refreshingly liberating view. It depends on how you come at it, view of the world of work. And that's what got me a lot of my early leads. And the way I generalize that advice is, yeah, you have to do something like this. You have to like find something you stand for that bucks conventional wisdom somewhere else. It's Peter Thiel's question of what's your secret? What do you believe that nobody else does? It's a version of that heuristic. And the connection to the earlier thought on models versus actors is it's this kind of like individual breaking away from the herd that actually starts you on your journey of becoming an actor rather than a model. So that's the reason you want to do that. And to connect up to the third thing you asked about, which is why do you want to have these kind of like black and white doctrinal things? So the opening chapter of volume one is a list of what I call 42 great truths. And I like this Niels Bohr quote that the opposite of every great truth is also a great truth. And you can think of things like, say, conservatives versus liberals in politics. And fundamentally, it's like each of them, each of the tribes hates the other tribe, but they're two great truths in politics. And the yin-yang tension between them is the sort of engine of politics, right? And I think once you start viewing the world in terms of these powerful dichotomies and force yourself to pick one, you force yourself to think hard. So this doesn't mean you should give up nuance. This doesn't mean that you can't see like the gray middle grounds and so forth. It's just that picking like these firm commitments to polarized sets of principles, it's part of the, I don't know, journey of becoming who you are as an actor. So you start with beefs, differentiating yourself, you evolve your philosophy by in a binary sense, picking various things you stand for or don't stand for. And eventually you become somebody who stands for coherent worldview. And yeah, then you can start adding a lot more philosophy and nuance and stuff around that. But until you start to stand for something, you're like this nebulous cloud of indistinguishable beliefs and opinions that can't be differentiated from the rest of the cloud at all. So there's both practical and still growth reasons for going down this path. I, I have to be totally honest. When I, when I first read the title of that chapter, I thought you were about to talk about, you know, questions about like mental models and then whereas you should actually prefer socio-technical actor questions or something. I wasn't thinking of actors and models in that sense. But that that also is a real sense in which you're in, in what you're advocating for across this book. Models are right until they're confining and constraining and not even wrong and a lot of the way to go is just to to begin acting and so i think potential readers of the book should know that volume one has a lot of that game plan theorized out how people can theorize the sort of move into indie work i found myself recommending it you know (laughs) i'm sure you know, you said you, t- you take these two and we'll get to, to get to how you take these sort of calls and, and casual coffees in a second. But, you know, folks, folks come to you for advice and um, part of you doesn't want to give them, you know, the exact same advice you'd give yourself, but just to give them a way of thinking about something. And you do that when you talk about different forms of runway and helping people build up the mecha suit of who they'll be as an indie. I think, though, I wanted to just get into something a little bit more tactical and juicy for potential readers. You actually break down in a way what where you get work from and how that work came about. You obviously keep folks private and protected and some folks that are interested can see a list of clients on your website, but you're fairly forthright about how you choose to live the way you do, where you chose to live, what you are 
free happy to disclose and what you aren't happy to disclose what we, sh- we should have taboos talking about in the consulting world i wanted to just get a quick sense of yeah just where do you go for advice on on these sorts of things you talk a lot in the book about how the importance of thinking of yourself as part of the consulting class part of this kind of clutch class is that the informal networks make everything happen. And I see various flavors of that coming out in the book. I guess I, I wonder what other kind of tent poles in the space besides besides this and how you're triangulating against them. I have read like a reasonable amount of the literature around that I would put in the same category as my books. But honestly, I'm not the advice-taking type, and this is one of the tensions that's in the book as well. The kinds of people who get sick of the 9-to-5 paycheck world and strike out on their own aren't exactly the kinds of people who like taking advice, and the ones who do end up as models because they want not advice, but they want machines they can crank formulaically and have this kind of predictable, don't have to think about it, outside success to bank with. So that's not the kind of people I'm talking about kinds of people I'm interested in talking to at all are people who just want the autonomy in the world of work, not necessarily as a formulate success. And for such people, I think the best way to figure things out is to figure things out yourself, which is why in this book, I don't offer like very explicit recipes, but as you put it, ways to approach your version of the problem, because I'm very wary of cookbook recipes, formulas, and so forth. But as far as where I go for my own needs, I think there's two kinds. One is the extremely philosophical stuff, and I tend to actually go outside of career or even business literature for that. So for example, we talked about infinite games, and the phrase comes from finite versus infinite games, which is the James Carr's book, which is a philosophy and theology book, actually. So that tends to be the source of my philosophical idea, the philosophical inspiration for how I approach my tactical problems. But for the tactical problems themselves, I personally have found that there's absolutely no substitute for trial and error with your own uh, life, because the circumstances are so completely unique that you're only going to discover what works for you by actually trying the various things that could work for you. And then later on, with hindsight, you might come up with generalizations. In one of the sort of statistical looks that you mentioned about my own sources of gigs, I realized that I was getting like more than 70 to 80% of my successfully closed leads and the bulk of my revenue from people I actually met in person for a coffee before the deal closed. I do have a lot of gigs that closed entirely online and more so after the pandemic. But in general, meeting in person seems to be a very important heuristic. And that led me to the heuristic of you really don't want to be in a farmhouse in rural Ohio or something. You want to be in a major city with a major airport where a lot of people are passing through. And if not, you at least want to be traveling, but there's downsides to that. But you want to create this zone of serendipity where there's a lot of opportunity for in-person coffee meetings. And of course, you should start entertaining leads and talking about gigs online. I've found a lot of my gigs started as conversations, as Twitter DMs and ended as coffees, and then we signed the contract and so forth. But that's not something I could have figured out by reading a book or talking to other people. And people who think they have this figured out by reading my book, they're probably mistaken because chances are 
that in their life, that's actually the crucial hack they need to figure out are pretty low. Like it's an important hack and it's true insofar as it actually applies to a particular situation. But take somebody random, say a 22 year old graphic designer, fresh out of college who has a particular set of tastes. What's their way of finding gigs? Is it as important to be in a city with an airport where a lot of people pass through? It is for me because I offer a particular kind of what you um, we talked about as the sparring model of uh, executive uh, coaching kind of consulting. So for me, it's important, but it might not be for others. So really, I think a philosophy you can get from anywhere, ideally not from work or career books, and the tactical knowledge you really should be looking to your own life for. And it sounds weird because in a way, I'm like underselling the value of books like this altogether. But I think that's one of the tensions that the book, I hope, honestly acknowledges, which is you want to create a philosophical framework for engaging the world of work, but you should neither offer nor accept either very simple recipes and procedural books, nor, I don't know, advice that's a little too glib and doesn't really get into the messiness of how the sausage is actually made. If the answer is too pat and elegant, it's probably not the right answer or a good answer. And it, it won't nourish the person reading it. I think you do offer some advice. I, I, th- I think the book does play that balance really well. Um, you know, the potential reader should know that you're constantly pulling out questions that after you come to your own conclusions, you can pull out the meta questions so that the reader can come to their own conclusions about that for their own life, sort of in the way that we started this when we talked about taking an appreciatively myopic view at your desk or wherever you're reading this and listening mm-hmm. to this right now. But there is one piece of advice that I think you offer as unreservedly as you do uh, anything else in the book, which is you arrange the money making around the passion work, not the other way around. And of course, you say this doesn't happen immediately because you need money to eat and to live and to have health care. But you do say that this is kind of ultimate. If there is a telos, it's like this for gig work. And so I wanted maybe for you to talk about that a little bit. I think maybe if, if the listener does end up picking up the book, what they'll have in their hands is in part that passion project. It's interesting you bring that up as the one unambiguous piece of advice in the book, which is funny because I think that's the one I most want to believe myself and is the one I have struggled the most to like finish as a it's still a telos. It's not something I've accomplished. It became easier over the years. Of course, once the immediate money-making pressures subside, but then it's still, it's never over. It's renewed, constant struggle to keep the thing at the center that you want kept at the center. And it's not a selfish attitude. It's more like, this is the reason you're going independent anyway, because there's so many great advantages to living a paycheck life. And one of the things i try to make sure I do in the book is not actually treat the paycheck world as some sort of philosophical enemy, because I do think the two are like intimately entangled and one couldn't exist without the other. But yeah, the challenge to become who you are is the center of this big life decision to basically make your own script, what my buddy Paul Miller calls the pathless path. Why would you go off a nice paved path where things are convenient and all laid out for you in into the sort of trackless desert where you may or may not run into an oasis and then you have to leave the oasis and then continue wandering in the desert somewhere? Why would you even do this to yourself? And the only reason that makes it worthwhile is that there's something else at the center of what you're looking for rather than traditional career success as conventionally defined. And if you're not constantly fighting that inner battle to define what that is and pursue it in a more true way every day, 
then at some level, the engine of your whole big decision is failing you. And you may be able to get through like the days and weeks, but over the months and years, the energy will drain out of you. You don't have this sort of source of spiritual energy to keep you moving. And it, the passion and arrange the work around the passion is a similar idea to something like, you know, arrange the body of the car around the engine. Like the car literally doesn't make sense without the engine. It's just like a shell you sit in if there's not an engine powering it. And the engine, of course, is a metaphor that can be used as a very superficial sense of, yes, you have to make more money than you spend. So in that sense, it's a financial and economic engine, but it also has to be a spiritual engine. Like chances are not for me, but for a lot of people, the reason you quit a nine to five job is often the fact that it's spiritually in the loss-making zone. It's like negative margins spiritually, and you feel like you're dying a little bit every day, and you quit so that you can actually start living. That's a lot of the reasoning I hear. And even if you're not in that mode, you're definitely going off into the indie life in part to at least improve your margins, so to speak, your spiritual margins. And you cannot do that until you keep something at the core. Passion is a terrible word. It's been like so abused and... <laughs> turned into, I don't know, meme, we call it the passion economy or whatever. I don't think it's a particular thing like writing a novel or doing a great work of art or something like that. It's not an explicit MacGuffin in your story as a hero's journey protagonist. That's not what it is. It's more like this illegible soul of the engine that creates the spiritual surplus that actually makes the rest of the game worthwhile. And it's not something that you figure out once and for all. It just becomes easy to figure out in some ways in the early years and then the challenge moves and then it becomes difficult in other ways like maybe you're aging maybe you have more family pressures so the challenge keeps renewing itself and you keep have to you have to keep reframing and re-engaging with the challenge as it exists in your life right now not as it existed five years ago so one of the sort of failure modes i see later in life is people frustrated in the sense of, oh, I thought I figured this out and I solved it. Why am I still feeling empty? Maybe somebody's, to, to paint a cartoon portrait, somebody quits their job to write the great American novel and they, they struggle for a few years to make any sort of money, but then it clicks and they start making money and they start writing the novel. They finish the novel and then at the end of it, they feel empty. The novel isn't as satisfying a meaning project as they thought. That's like the cartoon failure mode. You don't want that because that's mistaking a, a sort of artifact for the thing the artifact enabled you to pursue. So yeah, that's what I mean by arrange your work around your passion. You have to repeatedly do that in the present. You can't like rest on your laurels. If you've done it once, yes, that'll last you a while, but then you have to do it again. This reminds me this and this this feels a lot like a you know a process on ontology, right? It's the flows that are real, not the the transient things that the flows are going around as much. And this also feels a lot like what is the sort of orientation of the people school of consulting. And so I maybe wanted to dip a tiny bit into some of the history and the setup that you do at the beginning of the first book, just to help folks. I think the first book ends with a kind of in-depth explanation of what executive sparring is. And I'll leave that as a kind of inducement for folks to buy the book if they want to find out. I was always fascinated since reading that on your website. And I think you, you lay it out wonderfully. But this idea of just looking at a situation and seeing what's actually at play and then agreeing on a way of going forward and then nudging and then reevaluating and nudging 
and reevaluating and the idea of the kind of people schools prominence at the moment and that being the playbook. I was wondering if you could just riff on that for a tiny bit for folks to get a sense of what it is you get up to in that part of the book. Yeah, so the idea of the people school of management is from Walter Kitchell's book, The Lords of Strategy. It's a history of modern strategy consulting as an industry. And its governing historical framework is that there are two schools of consulting that emerged mainly in North America and a little bit in Japan in the 70s. So the main school is the dominant school that's represented by BCG Bain, Harvard Business School, Michael Porter, all the big names and institutions in business. And that's called the positioning school. And the positioning school takes its cues from the frameworks of economics. It's really applied microeconomics in a business context. And I would say 80% of consulting as it's understood and practiced today is the positioning school. And Walter Keith points out that all along the same historical period, the last 50 years, there has also been this minority tradition called the people school, which takes its cues from sociology and social psychology and psychology. And the people in that school are much less known and also much more diverse and fragmented. So there's a bunch of people like, for example, the University of Toronto and lots of other less famous places. So the people school Think of the positioning and people school divide as the divide between economics and sociological ways of understanding everything about the human world. And this divide, you see it everywhere in politics and economics and the business world, everywhere. There's like fundamentally economists' way of thinking about things and sociologists' ways of thinking about things. And the interesting thing about the literature about business and management and strategy coming from the people school is it takes frameworks and conceptual sort of scaffolding much less seriously. So there's no, so for example, a famous bit of scaffolding in the positioning school is Michael Porter's five forces analysis. So it's you map out a business situation in terms of five kinds of forces operating on a business problem, and then you analyze it. It's a very economist's way of thinking about a business problem in terms of like, you know, barriers to entry and what kinds of players are there. It's, a, it's like an observer that's sitting outside the problem and analyzing it like a bunch of moving parts with gears and levers and so forth. Whereas the sociological approach is much more embedded participant observation, thick description, narratively oriented and so forth. So it's more like you put yourself in the situation, you understand the people as people, you understand their perspectives on the organizations. So for example, Gareth Morgan wrote this great book called, what's it called? Words of Organization or something. I'm forgetting all my... Uh, Is it Images of Organization? Images of Organization. Yes, Images of Organization. So that's a classic in the people school canon. And it's the whole book is about the eight big overarching metaphors people bring to the world of work. So work as organizations as brains, organizations as systems of flux. So what operating metaphors do people think with? So an example of a people school approach to a strategy problem would be you go into an organization, you talk to a lot of people, you understand their mental models, you figure out what metaphors they're bringing to the world of work. And you like nudge and push, as you put it, and slowly start to form a picture of how everybody else is thinking about the situation. And then as a participant who's actually being seen as you're working, you start your own actions and interventions. This is a very different mindset from the positioning school, where the equivalent approach would be, you might come in as like a famous professor, do a talk about your 12-step lean 
model for making organizations profitable. And then the CEO gives you a thank you speech. And then you work with a couple of senior managers to do some sort of playbook of, oh, we're going to roll out this change program for introducing Lean Six Sigma. And then there's this whole alternate bureaucracy that's putting this whole positioning school playbook to work. And yeah, it works for certain kinds of problems. But in general, this is like trying to treat an organization as a machine and programming it with alien code when it's not doing what you want. That's one way to do strategy. And I think it's the wrong way to do strategy. So this is one of my strong opinions. And the people school approach is much more of get in the situation, understand it as a social system rather than an economic system, get to know the people and how they're thinking, understand the situation not as an objective thing you're looking at from outside, but as a participant thing where there's no objective truth, there's merely the triangulation of various subjective views of what's going on. And then you start actually acting in the drama yourself and help the story reach a satisfying conclusion. And it's a very different mindset, but it leads to much more creative strategic thinking. But the downside is it doesn't scale very well, which is why it's actually ideal for indie consultants to practice, because this is not the kind of approach to corporate strategy you would do with an army of 500 people armed with Excel spreadsheets, marching through like a Fortune 100 corporation and implementing Lean Six Sigma. This is not that kind of thing. This is more like you talk to some senior executives, have lots of long 90-minute to two-hour conversations. It's not uncommon for me. You talk to them over months, start to understand how they think, start to think with them, mind meld, and then you start making these little interventions. And if they're the right kinds of creative and imaginative interventions, you will end up having more impact than unleashing an army of 500 people armed with Excel models. So that's what the school of, I don't know, people-style independent consulting I practice. And it direct, I think I open volume one with an exploration of this. I think this is chapter three, but I close it with executive sparring, which is a way to deliver this kind of strategic support one-on-one. And if I could just tease the parts on executive sparring just a little bit more, there was a part of it that I loved reading, which was just the idea that at some point, maybe about five to 10 hours into talking with an executive sparring client, you will make an offhand comment that clicks something into place for them. And that will be the kind of trust building moment that uh, delivers on, on, you know, it's the fruits of something like executive sparring. And I want to say that a lot of volume two is about how to get to the point at which you're the end of volume one and a lot of volume two is how to get to the point at which you're somebody that is doing that sort of thing. You in particular, but also the folks that I think you're giving advice to. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I'm not going to edit them out. I'm hearing Discord sounds. There is a world around consulting. You've you've done things like start kind of decentralized group of consultants called the Yak Collective. I just wanted to ask a little bit about the kinds of people that were in the following and in the kind of like discourse community for this newsletter, where those folks are now that the newsletter is no more. How can people get in touch and find you and what kind of people will they expect to see in that circle? Yeah, that's actually an interesting way to incorporate my disruptive discord dings into the conversation. But actually, yeah, since that's the main discord group I'm on, the dings that you heard were in fact from the Yak Collective discord, which happens to be open. I won't apologize for it since it's given us this opportunity to talk about it. Oh God, no worries, man. It's all good. <laughs> But it's, so the newsletter was called Art of Gig, and one part that's not in these two volumes 
it was a fiction series that was like about a third of the newsletter, which had this fictional milieu of consultants from an imaginary secret ancient order of consultants called the Yak Collective, or the Order of the Yak, sorry. And it became a running joke, and a lot of the readers of the newsletters really enjoyed it. And when the pandemic happened, I thought that one of the things I could usefully do was give independent people and freelancers a place to go to just talk, since we were obviously much more vulnerable than people in paycheck jobs. So we started this Discord community and started doing projects and things together. And we called it the Yacht Collective, inspired by the fiction series that I wrote in the newsletter. And the interesting thing is, while the newsletter was being written, I think the modern indie consulting world was just actually taking off because you had, excuse me, the whole creator economy, the passion economy, all those phrases became current around the time I was writing this newsletter. 2019 to 2021, everybody started talking about the creator economy and the passion economy and so forth. And a lot of the tooling came of age. So this has been around for 20 years. Dan Pink wrote Free Agent Nation in like 2001. But there's been a couple of inflection points around along the way. So 2000 was one of them when the first online marketplaces for freelancers came up. Then maybe 2007, 2008, when Tim Ferriss wrote the four-hour work week. And I think 2019-20 was another inflection point where a lot of tools really matured, like workflow tools, invoicing tools, all sorts of things. And suddenly you had this very complete suite of like technologies that could allow a lot of people to do very powerful things, not just individually, but in collaborating groups and teams. And this was, I think, the moment, historical moment in the zeitgeist when I was writing the newsletter. So it was a lucky timing for me because a lot of people were not just doing indie work, but actually reflecting on it and thinking strategically about it and looking for ideas about how to do it differently or better. And several, like I mentioned, Paul Miller and another was Tom Critchlow. A lot of people I started talking to through the newsletter, they've since turned into good friends. Several of them are part of the Yacht Collective and we do projects together and so forth. But I think really what's happened is a kind of third generation of independent consultants has cropped up in the post-internet age, and that's just been born in the last couple of years. So this book was born at the same time as this latest generation of independent workers. And yeah, a lot of them are, they're not there in the Yacht Collective. They're doing many of the similar things, working more in groups, doing interesting things around mixing up portfolios of creative projects, writing, teaching, online classes, consulting at whatever levels, arranging from platform level under the API work to contract work to consulting. This whole, it's like a fully realized extended universe of independent workers just sprouted overnight and we're all pioneers i don't know doing a little bit of homesteading out here yeah and so i i think that's you know that, that's 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 a whole community that's that's uh you know one example of of uh of what's grown up and if, if readers want to know how that community parallels similar developments in the coffee world they will have to again buy the book and i think i just wanted to close off with a quote which was from the book believing in the paycheck economy you write is like suspending disbelief enough to watch a movie Believing in the gig economy is like suspending disbelief enough to read a book. You have to construct your own mental imagery to make it real. And I think this book is one person's example of how to do just that. And I'm very grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Venkat. Thanks for having me.